0: It's interesting. There's always someone doing better than you are, and it doesn't matter how well you're doing, right? I mean, the goalposts always shift. So if you're looking at money as an indication of happiness or success as an indication of of happiness, every time you you reach a new level, the the goalpost moves, and so you're never going to find it. It's like you you say, well, if I just did this deal, I'm really going to own X, Y, and Z, and that's going to be amazing. And then you do it. And then you, you know, you start meeting other people, and they've done three times that. And now you start getting more dissatisfied, and you know. It, so I think you can't tie happiness to money or particular ambitions because the goalposts will continue to move throughout your career.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I am pumped to have Dr. Julie Gerner with me today, who is an executive performance coach. She has often been compared to Wendy Rhodes on the show Billions, and she works with the top people in their craft across the globe, athletes, people in business, tech, real estate. She works to help make people operate at their best and be their best selves. So I reached out to Dr. Gerner to see if we could do an episode on what makes successful people successful from how they think, their habits, why successful people uh, can go through ruts and be stressed and burned out and just tools to think about how folks can live their best life. So this episode is fascinating. We go really deep into what makes people uh, operate at their peak performance. So thank you so much for continuing to join me. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Dr. Julie Gerner, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I'm so excited about today.
0: I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much.
1: Can we just start? Um, with a little bit about your background and kind of what led you to where you are today uh, with your current business?
0: You know, it's a really funny story because I grew up on a 200 acre farm in rural Pennsylvania. Uh, I was the kid driving a tractor. We had cows and chickens and, you know, horses. You'd never think that this is probably the place I'd end up. But I was always a quiet kid. I did really well in school and I loved to learn, Uh, taught myself how to play tennis and, you know, played for the school team. I'd skip lunch to learn about stocks from my high school teacher, and I was the first in my family to go to college. So, you know, as soon as I had the opportunity to get to school, I really took off and um, I skipped my master's degree. I went into a doctoral program and then started off very traditionally in psychology. At the time, you know, this area of work wasn't really well known or, or very available, and the internet really wasn't so much of a thing at that point. So I started off traditionally in psychology and working in prisons, hospitals, academics, and eventually advising products in tech. And that's really where I discovered what I love to do. You know, I was advising for a product. I had had the opportunity to do that a few times and a venture firm said, you know, we're having a founder in one of our portfolio companies who you know, just got this massive round of funding and has become somewhat paralyzed in making decisions. Uh, Do you think you could talk with him? And I said, sure. You know, I, I chatted with him and we had a couple of meetings. We were able to get him through that. And I think that overcoming that barrier for that person was really a big deal. The firm started to refer me other clients and other people. And then I started to get more work from there. And I realized, you know, this was like a shirt that fits perfectly where... You find out what you're exceptional at and you kind of put it together with what the world wants. And it just took off like magic for me. It was exactly what I was meant to do.
1: Oh, I love it. I have a couple questions there. Did, when did you know you wanted to be in the psychology field? Was it something you always wanted to do or did you kind of stumble into it?
0: That's a good question. You know, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a surgeon. That was something that, it, that interested me. I grew up kind of taking my dad's watch apart and often not putting it back together very well. But I liked the pieces and I liked meticulous work. And I always thought that that would be the way in which that would would culminate. So I went to college pre-med and I ended up finding my courses very dry. I was good in biology and I was really great at the courses that I took. But I it was really boring and I couldn't imagine, you know, years and years more. And I took an elective actually in philosophy and I absolutely Loved it. And I thought, you know, what I can't sit around and be a philosopher, you know, that's not a practical path forward. And psychology really started a path for me that married my interest in philosophy and my interest in science. And I was able to kind of pull it through in that way. And I think that's really where psychology came to my life. And, you know, I loved it every year that I, you know, studied it from that point forward.
1: I love it. And when you said you were advising products and tech, what does that mean?
0: I mean, it's like, you know, whether it's an email, uh, reducing cognitive load, uh, people develop apps where they want to work on, you know, things from mental health to uh, certain products. And they want to look at, you know, what causes people to be rewarded for certain behaviors or certain actions within app. So just kind of talking with them about the psychological functions behind some of the features that they build.
1: Got it. When I was doing um, research for this and we were chatting and, and you just said it, that you you worked in prisons, um, my biggest fear in life is going to prison. I have like <laughs> a, a huge fear of, um, I do not, that's not a place I want to be. Can you just maybe touch a little bit on the experience of working with folks that are in prison?
0: Sure. You know, um, the first place that I had done some work with, they actually take a photo of you in case you're held hostage and people would joke. uh, They would say, you know, well, if you're taken hostage, you get a year of your salary. And that never really made me feel better about working there. Um, But my place, actually, I worked in a supermax facility that was incredibly secure, as you can imagine. So the environment was very locked down. My unit was Uh, protective custody and MHU. So the mental health unit and protective custody with people who were not able to integrate into the general population because of the nature of the crimes they committed. So for example, if you hurt children, you're not exactly a popular inmate. So they usually will keep you segregated out if you have some uh, histories that people are aware of. But my experience there was actually really enlightening. You know, i When I worked, everybody was locked down 23 hours a day, and they only moved either for their out time or for a specific purpose. So the only people really walking around were the staff members. Everyone else was usually locked down most of the time. Uh, After being in COVID, I'm sure a lot of people have some empathy for that, uh, especially if it's in a you know very small box. But these people were incredibly interesting and. I ended up doing some work in verbal de escalation. So, before a lot of times, a person will refuse to come out of their cell when they're doing random searches and things like that. And before they send in SWAT, uh, they would send somebody like me to talk with the person to see if you could get them to come out of their cell before they send in someone with electrified shields to make them come out. And you learn a lot with how to connect with people and understand what moves people and sometimes really high stress, high emotion moments. And it's been I think it was a really important experience for me, especially early on in my career. You know, I was in my 20s at the time. And uh, it's been able to form a very thick skin. It's hard for me to take anything personally or get me really riled up.
1: Oh, I can imagine. I always wonder, you know, some people are like born to be a criminal and are evil. I sometimes wonder how many people and maybe you observe this, you know, they might have done something really bad in a moment. But after talking to them and getting to know about them, you kind of are like, this isn't, I I know what they did was terrible and unforgivable, but deep down, they're really not, you know, terrible people that would maybe even go do this again. They just made a mistake. Did you, did you tend to find that with people that you worked with?
0: You know, I did. I think that the thing that I learned that was probably the most disconcerting at first, just because you're young and you kind of don't think about it very deeply is that we always think about people who commit these crimes and end up in prison for the rest of their life as being these just different people. But the more that you kind of walk with them or you, t- you chat with them, you realize, you know, these are these were someone's neighbor. They were someone's brother or sister or someone's family member. And, um, you know, they're not as. They don't present the same way now because a lot of the accoutrements of society are taken away. You know, they don't maybe have the haircut or the clothing or some of the things that you'd expect to see of someone out in society. But the way in which they interact is um, is sometimes really, really shocking. Not everyone's a serial killer or does really horrible things because they're horrible people. And they sometimes do things out of emotion. They make bad decisions. And those bad decisions just had much higher consequences.
1: Yep. Well, now um, you moved more into the business world. And so how would you describe what you do? What is performance coaching?
0: I think the way I describe it best, and I think the way people can really connect with it is that most people, no matter who they are, know deep down that they can probably be better than where they are right now. You know, and that's true for people at every level. So if you're a CEO or you're just starting out or you're starting your own business or you're someone who has massive success, usually if you think about it and you take a moment, you can kind of reach down and know that you have more potential than where you're at. But most people don't know how to get there or really tap into that either. So it can create incredible frustration. And so what performance coaching does, you know, especially as a doctor of psychology, is you really kind of dive in and you find the blocks and you challenge people and you tap into their strengths and you pull them up from those spaces to be able to function in ways that they know deep down they can. And that's really the work that's done. And I I think that's the best of performance coaching. And and to me, that's always been a good way to explain it.
1: Yep. And and can you describe kind of your clientele and who kind of your target market is?
0: Sure, you know, my clients come from a variety of backgrounds. So, you know, I have clients in finance, clients in tech. Uh, I have professional athletes, um, people who are amateur athletes. I have people in real estate, And they all kind of share very similar characteristics and often seek you out for similar problems. And sometimes it's problems and sometimes it's just um, optimization. So they're the individual who says, look, I know I should be more focused. I know I should be more productive and I don't know why I'm not there. You know, I'm a motivated person, I'm ambitious. I don't know why I'm not there. And sometimes it's really specific problems, you know, that present very differently. So for example, you know, I could have an athlete after an injury Who's not taking risks anymore, and you know, a guy who's in real estate who had a massive deal get and, and totally got burned, who's now gun shy, and both are kind of operating from a place of fear. So while it might show itself differently, uh, these are usually just people operating at a high level who either have specific problems or keeping them from where they want to be, or they're just um, they're looking for something to really enhance where they're at.
1: And are most people self-selecting to come to you? Or are they kind of told maybe by somebody in their network, hey, you should go see a a performance coach?
0: You know, it's I tend to really like the people who come to me personally because I feel like they don't feel like they're sentenced to me. I think sometimes that happens. I've had a a coach send somebody to me who really I don't know how invested that that sometimes people are when they get sent versus, you know, they seek me out. But most of the time they seek me they seek me out personally or they have a friend who's referred them. So if they have you know, a friend who's doing really well in business, sometimes I'm the person they share and sometimes I stay behind the curtain. But, but yeah, I've never spent a dime on advertising. So, so far it's worked out pretty well.
1: I love it. You kind of touched on it, but what are the, the top reasons why people come to see you? When we had talked earlier, we talked about b- burnout and confidence. Are there other reasons that people come to see you?
0: Absolutely. I think that either they have something really acute, like burnout, or they have specific issues like confidence or, you know, not taking risks or having some fear or hesitation they want to get beyond, or they're having issues uh, that they don't know, they really can't put their finger on. And I think those are the clients that are really fun too, because they're having frustration that like things aren't where they think they should be. And that's a really common phrase that a lot of people will tell me, like, I know I can be better than this. I'm really frustrated because, you know, my business isn't moving as quickly as I'd like or that I'm not where I think I should be or I'm not performing where I think I should. And usually they've seen other people or they've tried things on their own and they're people who are used to solving their own problems, but they can't figure it out. And so I'm the person that they go, okay, let's see what you can do. And so, in that way, I guess I'm kind of the fixer, But usually, we'll meet, and you know I have a thirty minute meeting with anyone who's a potential client, and we'll see where things are at, and we set really specific goals, and I give them an estimation. You know, most of my clients are only three to six months. I have a couple of clients who've been uh, clients of mine for a year or so now. but you know, usually they aren't problems that take a long time to make motion on, and it's my goal really to give them the tools they need so that you know they're flying on their own. And when things come up, that they're able to kind of tackle them to have the insight to see where it's coming from and to be able to overcome it. It's really exciting for me to watch them uh, kind of fly in that way, because it's everything you knew they could be. And then they begin to see it. And I think it's really exciting for them.
1: That is so that has got to be such a cool moment when you see somebody kind of quote unquote, breakthrough what does three to six months look like? is do you meet with them weekly? Is it a lot of written material? what What would that look like?
0: So what it usually meets, uh, looks like is that, you know, my theory is that once a week for an hour is is going to move pretty slowly. And so what we do is we meet once a week for an hour, and then they have things that they're doing every single day to push that forward. So we kind of do some deep dives in our individual meetings. And then we pull that through into things that they're doing on their own, in vivo, in their own environments, and really pushing things. And then usually they'll send me an update like midweek and say, okay, I'm doing these things and it's working out fantastically well, or maybe I'm doing these things and like this is the barrier I'm coming across or this is the problem that I'm having in the moment because I want them to really be pulling this stuff out and using it in the environment that they're in. And if they're able to kind of see that actualize well and they're able to see it work, um, then we really can kind of figure out what works for them, what doesn't work for them. But when they start hitting against barriers, it gives me the opportunity to kind of problem solve with them in the moment. And then we work through that and and we talk about it in our next session.
1: And so if I came to you and just said, you know, I'm just really lacking confidence, the, the result of confidence, I guess, is a bit subjective. It's not like, you know, you can assign a, a numeral to it. Um, how do, How do you tell people this is how we'll know we succeeded. And is it them providing feedback, like I'm confident now, or is there stuff that you look for that you can go like, okay, we've we've hit our goal here. We, the six month has solved what we wanted to solve.
0: I rely on them 100%. But what I do is, when we have that initial 30-minute meeting before we get started, is we set really specific goals. So if it's one, I want to increase my confidence. I say, well, what would that look like? You know, does it look like you taking more risks? Does it look like you initiating different types of meetings, going after different types of clients? Does it look like you landing bigger deals? Like, give me some. Give me some markers of confidence and let's start to look at what those are. We set really specific goals. And then as the months pass or as you know, the month passes or the second month passes, you should be watching yourself begin to make motion on these things. And I hold myself accountable just as much as you know, they should be looking for you know, those things to come to fruition. So it's really something that challenges me as well. Like I hold myself accountable. If they don't meet those goals, I've failed. If they're all in, it's my job to make sure that those things happen. The only reason that they shouldn't happen is um, if for some reason they're not engaged, they're not following through. And, you know, I, I fire clients who don't do that. So I don't feel like they, there's any reason really that they shouldn't be meeting these goals. And often we meet them in advance and they don't require quite as long as I anticipate.
1: And the end of a session are do clients... You know, you kind of release them back out into the wild and they've gained their confidence. Do they tend to come back and see you in the years going forward, or do they really only come back if if a certain issue kind of arises?
0: It's so interesting because it really depends on who the person is. I have somebody who I worked with years ago who will then surface and say, like, hey, you know, I'm doing some investing in the US. Is there anyone that you know in X, Y, and Z fields? And I get to be kind of a connector. And that's always kind of interesting. I'll have someone who will contact me. Maybe they have something really big coming up and they'll want to have a session beforehand. And I'll meet with them prior to that. I'll have people who will do like, I just want a monthly check-in. And you know we long concluded, but we'll chat like one hour once a month to kind of make sure that they're staying on track and that everything's going the way that you know they want it to go. And there's some accountability there. Um, So people all use me differently and I try to be very flexible to what their needs are. Uh, But usually I'll hear from them in in some way or another.
1: Yep. And then one more question just kind of on, on burnout, because, you know, I just know a lot of people that, you know, run businesses and are in these positions and burnout's a huge one. Can we just talk a little bit about what a successful turnaround looks like there? How does somebody go from being burnout to super energetic again?
0: Oh, that's a great question. So Burnout is something that I think is, is largely misunderstood because we think about it as something that's just about workload. And to me, I think that that is a very uh, it's a very surface level analysis of what burnout is. You're trying to do more. You're um, trying to stack more on top. But to me, it's really about energy management. Right. Like we all have things that take from us and we have things that fuel us. And so when I look at a case of burnout, a lot of times it's people who are doing tasks that really take from them and are very draining. And they're just attempting to push through over and over and over again. And they don't have the resources. They're not, whether those resources are, you know, how they're managing their food intake, their energy from other things like exercise and breaks and and how they're using their cognitive resources are usually really strained and kind of pushed to the edge. So in approaching that individual I try to look at, okay, let's do a really personal assessment of the things that fuel you, that really light you on fire, because that's going to change depending on who you are. Like I have a client right now who like loves negotiation. I mean, loves it. When he's talking about it, it like lights him up. He's excited about it. He's great at it. He loves it. I have other clients who just dread negotiations. They hate going in. It's an absolute drain. They dread it for two days. They know it's coming. So it's really important to get really personal about that. And I have them kind of walk me through the things in their day that fuel them or take from them. And then we, we know kind of where to double down. We look at what kind of breaks they usually take. I look at their schedule. We see if they're integrating exercise. What kind of things are they using to fuel themselves? What's their self-care like? Are they sleeping well? Are they eating well? Do they have any medical issues that I should be concerned about or thinking about? So there's a lot of things that go into that. And then we kind of formulate a plan that really capitalizes on the things that fuel them and putting things at the forefront that are challenging and difficult when they have the most resources and making sure that we take you know breaks. And then we start building them back up to where they feel confident and they feel a little bit more energized. And it's a process of, of just kind of building from a very small point, uh, kind of a skeletal framework, and then we'll keep adding things in. We'll kind of play around with it a little bit. And then eventually they get to a point where they feel like, okay, I'm back feeling like I used to. My schedule might not look exactly the same. I might have to build in some things so that I don't get to the place where I was at and be able to kind of take off from there.
1: Yep. A lot of the issues, especially in business, people might think, well, maybe I'm not you know, working hard enough or, or doing enough. Uh, what I'm hearing you say is a lot of the, the burnout could come from things going on outside of the office and they just don't even have a chance to show up to work with a good mind to... uh to, you know, be optimistic.
0: That's true. You know, like uh, some of the things I think about, Chris, are foundational things, right? Like the foundational elements to just bringing your best self to work often are the things that we ignore. Like, did you sleep well? If you have young children, sometimes they interrupt your sleep, right? So your sleep might not be as, as awesome as you hope it would be. But, you know, despite that, what are the very foundational elements that should be like setting the stage for your best performance? It should be that you have some great sleep. It should be that you're eating fairly well. It should be that you have something outside of work that makes you feel you know, happy and engaged. It should be that you do some kind of physical motion. I mean, it could be going for a walk. It could be cycling, whatever that is for you. You should have something where you're moving your body a bit. And these are just like basic foundational elements and you can always tweak those too. And sometimes I have clients who have like a nagging issue that they just never take care of because they don't feel they have the time. Like they should have had shoulder surgery like three years ago from an old injury, but they're like, I don't have time to deal with that. I don't want to deal with the rehab, but it nags at me every day. You're not going to be bringing your best self forward. So, I do encourage people to kind of get those foundational elements taken care of and then we start looking at okay, let's dive into the the person you are when you step in the office.
1: Got it. I'm I'm labeling this next section as called peak success. I just want to talk about why people are successful and I'll ask I'll start with a loaded question. Is there a pattern of thought, behavior, or action that threads the the top 1% in their field and and can things like this be reverse engineered like are there certain things that all great successful people have in common or is it different to the individual?
0: I think that there are certain things that I see are very common most of the time. So these are the things that I think are common most of the time. I think most of the time, these individuals are autodidactic, meaning that they're self-learners. If there's something that they don't know, they don't kind of sit back and hope that they, it somehow falls from the sky. They usually they will search for it. They'll read books on it. They'll take a course on it. They'll ask an expert about it. They'll hire someone around it. They'll seek out kind of self-teaching and self-learning. They'll figure it out. So I think autodidactic and kind of being a self-learner. I definitely think that all of them have a bias to action. So, they're not someone who says, Oh, I have this great idea how I want to do something. And then 10 years pass and they say, Oh, that good idea I had. They're usually someone who's more likely to take action rather than to kind of kick back. And the third one, I guess, is a little controversial because I know I see all the time people praising patience, right? Mm-hmm. But almost everyone I work with, I would say a trait of theirs is they are incredibly impatient. They are not patient for results. They wanted it done yesterday. So, I think patience is a virtue, but in business, it's, it's kind of not, you want to play the long game, but you're pushing all the time for regular execution and, you know, progress and for things to push out and to get the next contract signed and, you know, X, Y, and Z. So I, I think patience is, uh, is not something that I see a lot and maybe, um, is something I think gets a little overhyped in business.
1: Yeah. When I think of a, like an Elon Musk or something, the word patient does not come to mind. It doesn't. Um, Let's talk a little bit about success. And we had chatted between like men and women. You said you kind of made a comment when we chatted that men flex differently. But are there characteristics of men and women um, are similar and, and then reasons why they're different?
0: I think that men and women are uh, sometimes equally ambitious and how that shows itself will be different because of what culture finds acceptable. And it's it's always great interacting on Twitter because I get, sometimes I'll say things and I'll, I, I made a comment about, you know, kind of women not being as humble and, and someone's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm surprised people aren't more, you know, forthright about their ambition. And, you know, so I, I do think that how women and men talk about their ambition changes Uh, Women tend to be much more low-key about their ambition or power. You'll hear like, even if you look on the internet, like there's a whole alpha male thing. Like if that's not as big in women, you watch it, the types of Twitter threads that people create, you'll see men talking about the deals they put together and, you know, that the money that they secured or the investments that they've made. And that's a lot more rare in female circles. And it's not that it's not happening. You know, like I know a woman who's invested in now three different unicorns and no one knows her name and she's not talking about it on Twitter, even though she's on Twitter. Women don't flex in the same way. They kind of downplay their own wins in business sometimes, I think, uh, much to their own detriment. But I think a lot of the things are the same, right? I mean, there's stress, there's sometimes fear of ridicule. No one wants to be ridiculed or made fun of that fear of humiliation. I think both men and women have insecurities. Uh, I think both compare to their peer groups. And so I do think that there's a lot of similar struggles. And I think that men have, unfortunately, struggle with with where to talk about some of these things, right? I mean, there's that whole notion like men will do this instead of going to therapy. And I, I think that while that that saying is, you know, people are laughing about it, I think that it's the truth behind it is is really tragic because men do struggle with things like confidence or fears or anxiety or ridicule or risk-taking and they have no place to discuss it really. I mean, sometimes people will do it, but it's always very low stakes items like, oh, I failed at this one thing, but it was three years ago when I was just starting out. And, you know, today I'm, you know, making 10 plus million a year. It's not a big risk to say something like that. But I do feel like if men had more opportunities to kind of really connect and talk about those things, I think it would do a a great service for them. And I think they'd feel a lot less alone.
1: Do you think some of these are like biological things or are these, or are a lot of them attributed to kind of societal pressures and, and norms or are these just DNA genetic uh, makeups of men and women?
0: It's hard to say, right? Because both coexist in, in the same world. So it would be hard to say. I would like to say that I think culture has much more of an impact than anything else. We We drive really hard. And I think everyone is driving really hard to be successful in the ways in which you know, they want to to rise and to, to actualize their own potentials. But how we talk about it and how we dance around things and what we don't talk about oftentimes is defined by where we live and, you know, what society rewards and what it looks down on or what it sees as weak. You'll often hear women on social media talk much more about their insecurities, for example. But I, I do think that there's a lot of the same struggles. Maybe they're not to the same extent. It would be hard to know. But, I think culture defines a lot of how we discuss these things and and I think it's all almost always to our detriment
1: and obviously, people come and they work with you, but what do you tell people? kind of I keep saying the back in the wild, but to be vulnerable, do you find that a lot of successful people eventually are vulnerable and have kind of uh created a network around them of folks that they can just go sometimes just verbalize how they're feeling and get stuff off their chest? I think I see so many people that hold it all in for so long. And you see people like finally tell somebody and you can just see that sigh of relief. Do, do you see that among successful people? Like they have a great network around them with where to go vent and talk about their frustrations?
0: I think people have very close, they'll have a very close friend. Oftentimes, it's their spouse. I don't see it discussed all that often. I think that vulnerability is still largely seen as as weakness. And I think that I don't. I don't see that changing anytime soon.
1: So you deal with people that have uh, that have made a lot of money. Can you just speak to? Um, I'm trying to figure out how to ask the question. Like how unimportant having money is to overall happiness. Like where where it tops out and where it becomes a you know a big concern of somebody if they're too wrapped up in it.
0: It's it's interesting. There's always someone doing better than you are. And it doesn't matter how well you're doing, right? I mean, the goalposts always shift. So if you're looking at money as an indication of happiness or success as an indication of, of happiness, every time you you reach a new level, the the goalpost moves. And so you're never gonna find it. It's like you you say, Well, if I just did this deal, I'm really gonna own X, Y, and Z and that's gonna be amazing. And then you do it, and then you, you know, you start meeting other people and you know they've done three times that. And now you start getting more dissatisfied. And, you know, so I think you can't tie happiness to money or particular ambitions, because the goalposts will continue to move throughout your career. And if you look back, you know, when you first started out, and I'm sure you can do this, Chris, I mean, you've done really well for yourself. And, you know, when you were first starting out, if you would have talked to that guy about where you're at now, I mean, he would be blown away, probably. He would probably say, oh, man, you've really made it. And now you're here and you go, well, there's still more I have to do. It changes all the time. So you can't link those things together. And I think you have to decide what makes you happy. And those things have to be separate from, you know, your ambitions per se, or they're, you're just never going to sit in a place of happiness.
1: Yeah. On the other discussion about confidence obviously a lot of successful people you could probably say are are confident people how often do you have to tell people like hey dude you're you're way too big for your britches like your problem <laughs> is that you think you're invisible and you're not and that's what's making you in a rut is you've you've gotten too big for your britches
0: i think one of the the great joys of my job is that i often work with people that never hear the truth right so I hear people who are often surrounded by people who tell them what they want to hear and that it usually ends up facilitating their blind spots. So kind of how I how I approach it is that, you know, your greatest strength and the greatest position that you hold and kind of all of the success that you've had is also keeping alive a lot of the things that are holding you back. It can facilitate these blind spots. And so you really have to be I think telling someone, you know, you don't see it properly is not quite the same as showing them where their limitations are. And I think as soon as you show people who don't feel they have limits where they're limited, they sit up and pay attention.
1: Has anybody ever come to you and just said, hey, I'm actually not feeling that bad, but I would like to work with you on identifying where my major blind spots are in my life?
0: Yes. I've certainly had people who are, you know, running larger businesses say, you know, I know I'm not where I need to be, but I can't see it. And I know I should be further ahead. And I don't know why I'm not there. And I, you know, everyone who surrounds me is a yes man, and I know I can't trust them. So, you know, what do you think you could do to give me some insights here? And I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways to go with that. A lot of times I'll even do something really traditional, like, you know, we'll do a 360 where I'll, you know, interview people at different levels of their organization under the condition of complete anonymity. And I'll get some really honest feedback about how their CEO is performing. And then I'm able to kind of bring that back to him and say, all right, these are all the areas where various people are seeing, you know, that there are some weaknesses and vulnerabilities. What are your thoughts around some of those? And usually if they're seeking me out, they're looking for those opportunities to kind of shore up, areas where they're not that strong and to be able to see these spots. And I think they're always really grateful. Some of the feedback is really hard to hear sometimes. But I think if you're seeking me out or you want to see those things, you're in a position where you're ready to hear it. And it ends up being some really beneficial and uh, I think big moments for them.
1: Your point of leaders often get surrounded by, we'll call it yes people that just are going to agree with everything. After a session with somebody, is there a way for successful people to you know give people the freedom to provide feedback or is it just kind of one of those like hey you're my boss I don't want to rock the boat I there's too much downside to saying the wrong thing or is there a way for successful people to open up kind of feedback loops with people around them
0: I think there's always ways to open those up but I think oftentimes if you've established a history of a certain type of leadership where you are intolerant of difference or that you punish people who challenge you or you know, there are some kind of patterns that have been entrenched. I think you're going to have a much harder time changing the culture than you will just kind of making tweaks and adjusting it. So I think it depends on where you come from as to how successful an effort like that will be.
1: If you think about habits, does it matter if somebody has a morning routine or a way they start the day? Is that an indicator that they'll be successful or that
0: doesn't matter? You know, I... I was so excited that you were thinking about habits, because one of the things I've noticed is probably something I've never talked about, but I've been seeing literally for years, which is I don't see that anyone has like there's this strict morning routine that everyone should follow. But one of the things that I've consistently noticed um, that I've never written about or anything is that there are these sort of anchor behaviors that really successful people will hold on to that are incredibly important to their everyday. So I'll give an example just because it's a public one that people that has talked about it. But Jeff Bezos, when he was CEO of Amazon, he said really clearly that he didn't take a meeting before 10 o'clock in the morning and that he used the time in the morning as putter time like putter time. He literally would like just have a cup of coffee, putts around the house and just like sometimes read the paper, sometimes like just do nothing, sometimes look at his phone. It's just puttering around. The guy's wildly successful, but like that was his morning. Uh, others have more strict routines. Sometimes people... Uh, I have a guy doing deals right now that his only real habit in the morning is that he has to take an hour walk every morning to think. He walks around New York City, And, you know, he has to have this hour in the morning where he thinks and nothing else is really that important. He doesn't have to wake up at six. He doesn't have to have every half an hour structured. But it seems like people have to have something that they that they find really valuable themselves. And, you know, they repeat this every day as a way of anchoring them to start or have a successful day. And I find that people who are younger are always trying to mimic successful found- founders by saying, "Oh, I have to have the specific routine that X Y and Z has." But as they get more seasoned and successful, they seem to just double down on what works for them personally. And I think that was my big takeaway is that we can all find the things like maybe for you it's like riding on your bike for an hour or maybe it's just having coffee and looking at the paper for an hour before your day starts but whatever that is like just double down on that and if it's important to you and anchors your day that can be your morning routine it doesn't have to be the same as others and i know for myself i even know the benefits of meditation and there's no way in the world that i can meditate i've tried a thousand times and it's just it's not useful for me and it's not helpful you know but i know it's wonderful and i have clients who who love it so i think you have to just find what works for you
1: yeah is there any um any science or data behind you know folks that work more in the morning versus the evening you often you often hear of night owls or early risers does that really play a difference or teach his own
0: it it does you know i think Everyone has a different way that their circadian rhythm feels to them and that you'll definitely see that some people operate really well in the morning. and Some people are better in the evening. Uh, I don't mean a lot of afternoon people. I don't know why that is. What are you? Are you a morning or an evening person?
1: Honestly, like I don't, to me, i never been a crystal clear answer. I can work at night. I get up pretty early. I'm trying to become more of a morning person. A lot of that's because I have kids and things I have to do, but. Um, to me, it's never been really clear. I don't know why that is, but I always, to me, one thing that is important is a morning routine that I've stuck to in COVID and it's kind of changed my life. It's for me, it's a walk 90 minutes every day and it's totally changed kind of how I set up the day. And I'm able to get a lot of mental energy out early, which is good because yeah. I used to come in the office like ready to blow and ready to go. And I've, now I've had time to like burn off some of that energy before I come in in a good way.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I definitely see that there are some people who say, you know, they get up in the morning, that's when they, you're going to stack your hardest tasks because that's when their energy is at its peak. And then you have some folks who say, you know, mornings, I'm barely making it. And, you know, just like uh, Jeff Bezos, you, you take your first morning meeting at 10 uh, because you know that at that point, you're going to be kind of more you know, in your head and at your best. So I think you have to go with what works for you. But I recognize that biologically, we're all kind of, we have different predispositions. And I encourage people when they can to work with them. And it doesn't always work out that way, because, you know, we work in a world that has a very nine to five kind of mentality. But when you can, it's best to kind of try to stick in those zones for, you know, your hardest work and looking at where your energy is best used.
1: One thing when you when you're talking about Jeff Bezos, I've read is he always said that like his job was to make three really great decisions a day, and that's how he would know kind of how he had a good day. Is there anything that you would say to people that make fewer decisions a day but more uh, focused versus you know some CEOs that pride themselves on making a thousand decisions a day?
0: I think you have to know what your highest and best use is for your organization. Like, where are you? exceptional and then if you can place yourself in those spaces that's how you push your business forward and everything else like just getting brutally honest about the things that you're not so great at the things that other people can do better the things other people can take on and if you're the fantastic decision maker and you can make you know 15 decisions a day then you know roll with it but if you're the person who says you know my highest and best use is that I set the strategy for you know, X, Y, and Z, and that's really kind of what you focus on. Or maybe you're great with building certain business partnerships, or you're really good with vetting certain types of uh, deals out there. Whatever that is, just double down on your particular highest and best use. And I think what's great about it is when you get to that point, you're clearly pretty far along in your, in your business because it, originally you are everything, whether you're good at it or not. Um, but as you continue to rise, you hire out for your greatest weaknesses. And, and then as you continue to rise, you can kind of put yourself in this place where all you're doing is the thing that you are exceptional at. And it's really a, a difference maker in your business.
1: You mentioned the nine to five thing, and I had a question. You deal with clients all over the globe that come from different cultures, their societies think of success in different ways. America's a very individualistic society. Do people internationally struggle from different things than Americans do, or do we all kind of share the same struggles?
0: I think the executives, there are different things sometimes they're concerned about that sometimes surprise me, the things that they take into account or... The types of of things that they that they think about, but I think that the cultural issues don't come into play as much because most of them are competing on kind of a global stage. So if you think about, uh, you know, let's just say you run an ecom business, you know, your ecom business is competing with ecom in other countries and other places, you're probably outsourcing to the same places as well. And, you know, the places that you're advertising might be the same spaces. So how you think about the work that needs to get done is is pretty similar. But how you start to think about your employees or the culture that you create, um, those things may change a bit. And I think those are always really fascinating. Um, The things that you consider and the ways in which you think about, you know, the people who work for you, Americans can be a bit brutal in that respect, but, um, and I do see sometimes that other places, they have a care or a concern about their employees that not everyone has as they rise to certain levels here.
1: Do people often kind of drift back to old problems? um, And then if somebody's worked with you, is a lot of the result they get, even when they leave you a bunch of tools that they can kind of help self-correct when they notice that they're kind of slipping back into old patterns?
0: Um, I think one of the things is that everyone under stress, their first impulse is going to go back to the most strongly reinforced pattern that they have. So if you are somebody who's done something for 20 years in a certain way, we've worked together and you're kind of really getting in a different path that under severe stress, you may resort to some of that stuff that you've done for 20 years. But I would hope that you'd be able to call it out, catch it, and course correct. And so while I would expect that sometimes people will get kicked back to to some old habits sometimes, I definitely would expect that they would see it. Uh, People get a different way of viewing the world when they have those moments where they, they see opportunities for change and shift that benefit them. And so I think that they would begin to see those things right away and probably begin to correct. I would hope that they would. And I always tell them that, you know, it's it's like a car shop or anything else. Sometimes people need tune-ups, just like anything else, and so they're always welcome. You know, my door is always open if they want to schedule something. I'm good to go.
1: Got it. I think one of the things that I've just kind of observed, and I and I fall into this camp too a lot, is that people that, especially in businesses or when you think of athletes, like their identity is their profession, and that's they've gone decades where that's how everybody knows them. And that can be Mm -hmm. a source of great pleasure. And it can also be a source of great pain. Do you see that a lot?
0: I do. And you know, I'm all about power. And I think you'll collapse it with that kind of mindset. Um, If you put your entire identity into a business, you have one leg supporting you, you have one leg under you, right? And if you have 10 legs under you, 20 legs under you, you keep standing even when one's kicked out, you know, even if it hurts, and even if it is is difficult. It's a stronger mindset and position and it keeps you in a better place. So, you know, business is one thing you do, but it's not all you do. And I think separation in that, you know, yourself and your identity from your work will make you better within the work. And it also makes you better when things happen with the work. So, you know, I, I always find that to be a really dangerous position and it's how people end up, you know, when you see, you know, the stocks just plummet And people think about taking their life and, you know, it's, it's absolute tragedy, but, you know, if your identity is your business, you can understand how that, you know, hits you in some of the hardest places. So you don't want to just have one peg, one leg supporting you. You want to make sure that you're well supported and you give yourself a place of strength to come from. And no matter what happens then to that business, you're able to pivot, you're able to move, you're able to uh, kind of reconfigure things because you're in a better place. But if you're psychologically collapsed because your business did poorly or didn't get funding or had to close shop or you had a failure or a bankruptcy or something, um, it's going to be much harder for you to move on and you're going to struggle uh, a lot more significantly than somebody who's able to to kind of build in those supports.
1: Yeah. I don't mean to ask a loaded question, but I just, you know, I picture these people that are really successful. They've been doing what they've been doing for a very long time. It's how they're known. They might come to see you. You identify that that's a root issue. Their identity is wrapped up in their business. I guess the loaded question is, how does someone unwrap themselves from their business? Is that communicating to the people around them about other things they're interested in? Is that more of a personal thing that they have to overcome? How do they get out of that trap?
0: I think one way is to use it, right? Use the things that people are passionate about to leverage them into better spaces. So if you're really passionate about your business, can you mentor young people around business? And then you get them involved in this whole other area of life that brings them meaning and purpose. Um, so there are ways to use that as a springboard. And I think that's really the route I would go. If you really love business, I'm never going to tell you not to love it. But I'll show you new ways that you can use that to connect with other things that might really bring you meaning and fulfillment and can you know be a new way of looking at it. Can you get involved in philanthropy? Is there a cause you really believe in that then you can support? And people begin to uh, then not just have their business, but then they have all of these other things that they're involved in. Sometimes it's because of that business. Sometimes it's because of their knowledge of business or their success, the success they've had in the business. One of the areas I see this as a real struggle, you know, frankly, is when people sell their business. You know, I see guys who will pour, and men and women, but you know, men tend to be the majority of the folks that I've worked with around this particular issue. But you know, they spend 10, 15 years building a business. It is their entire life. Uh, they sell that business. They have a great payday. And then they're like, what now? Like, what do I do? What, what am I going to do with my time? Like, who am I now? Um, and it's, it's really challenging, right? So, uh, you know, I've talked with a number of people who are, have to kind of find that next thing. And, and a lot of times it's still going to be finding kind of the next business or next venture they're going to be a part of. But you want them to do that smartly so that they're not just kind of jumping into anything because they feel this void in their life and help them kind of broaden that spectrum a little bit.
1: Yeah. I, I'm always told by folks, you know, never retire because you see people that are like brilliant and they're moving and then they retire. And a year later, they look like they've aged 10 years. Is, is that how powerful the mind is that when it starts shutting down Everything else tends to to fade. I mean, when I this week was Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's Berkshire Hathaway meeting. They always talk. You know, part of the reason they're ninety and ninety seven and still sharp as attack is they've just kept going. What's how do you think about that?
0: I think it's really important. I'm, I'm working with a business now that I think is doing just a brilliant job at, at a number of things. But one of the things that I love is that they have someone who is you know, a, an older person at the business who incredibly, uh, just a brilliant, brilliant man, and is really in more of like a chairman role now. Not somebody who's really functioning in the day-to-day CEO uh, CEO role, but somebody who's definitely like still involved and invested and gives feedback and helps to set strategy and, you know, is is still involved in some really interesting things. And I think that, if you can be involved in something that you love, it's like playing you know, a sport for the rest of your life or playing anything else. But I think your level of engagement probably shifts uh, just because of age and capacity. And maybe you want to do some other things with your life or have some other experiences in life. But I think being engaged with it, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And I think I don't really feel that it's sometimes great to force people out of that state either. I think that naturally sometimes people begin to have weak spots that they notice and maybe they need to change roles. Maybe you're not gonna be the person who's CEO or day-to-day, but you're still gonna come into the business. You're gonna check on it. You're gonna have those conversations. It's still gonna be part of your life. And I think people get a lot of value from that.
1: In a, in a world of um, you know social media, and you said you started this before the internet was even really a thing, yeah. How, how much is social media and our society's need for dopamine hits? You know, you hear the word anxiety a lot more like is social media having a broader impact on the global population than than we think? Like are there trends or signals that you see or things that come up in conversation that are like, "Oh, that's because of social media."
0: Yeah, you know, I think that comparison uh certainly skyrockets with social media. And I think a lot of it is false presentations as well, you know. People think that they should be successful at the age of 24 and feel incredible anxiety when they're not. But you know, research counters that. Most people are starting their most successful ventures and reaching the pinnacle of success in starting businesses in their mid-40s. But it's not what you'd think from social media. So I think sometimes that we get this really skewed perspective of what the world looks like and what success looks like and where we should be Uh, Instead of really focusing on ourselves, we're focusing on all these other people and all of these other things. And I think it absolutely can be destructive. And I think also it can promote um, emotions that are very destructive. You know, people are always angry. They're always panicking. They're always anxious. They're always, you know, complaining about something, angry about something. And, you know, sometimes it's totally legit to be angry about something. But if all you see in front of you every single day is anger, 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 anxiety, 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 panic, 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 like it's not great for your mindset. And you really have to think about curating your feed so that you see things that fuel you and that push you and that are supportive and are great contacts. You know, real estate, Twitter, who I've been fortunate, I guess, to, to find you and get to know you and some other folks, but like you have such kind of a great community there and I'm sure it's not perfect, but people seem to genuinely give free advice and they, they talk to each other about certain things and they get together and, um, and there's more of a community. And I think if you can find real community, um, it can be a really positive place too. But I think, uh, for other folks, it can be very difficult and challenging.
1: I agree. Nobody posts the the picture of the fight they just got in, you know, with their spouse <laughs> yeah. or whatever. They post the the picture on the beach.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's great. Uh, that's a great way to look at it because you're really comparing to other people's highlight reel and not to kind of the what's going on behind the scenes. There could have been a terrible fight before that beach photo was taken. And to really be aware that what people show you isn't 100% accurate all the time.
1: My one question on on just like something that maybe a listener could take from here, but it's it's still on the topic of anxiety. It's, it just seems to be more prevalent um, today. Is there something that you would tell people if they're anxious in the moment or they're having kind of a bad day at work that they could, a mental exercise they could go through to kind of decompress and uh, unwind a
0: little bit? Absolutely. I think that rather than decompress um i would i always feel like forward progress um makes people feel more in control so if somebody's dealing with stress or anxiety in the moment i would say ask yourself what's the one thing i can do to kind of make this better or move this forward just focus on one thing so for example if you just find out that you know your mom's in the hospital what's one thing you can do uh if you find that, you know, your business deal is really like it looks like it's going sideways, what's one thing you can do? Uh I think stress and anxiety are overwhelming when they're when it's vague, when it's large, and it just feels messy, big, uncontrollable, and that they're it's paralyzing. So having some clarity and being able to focus on one thing. What's the one thing, one thing I can do to make this better and move it forward? And get real simple, real specific, and very clear about that. And I think that can make a big difference.
1: That's great. Okay, I'm going to ask some um, questions that came in off of uh, off of Twitter. We haven't talked about uh, the Wall Street Journal's comparison of, of you to Wendy Rhodes, and, and I want to get to that in a bit. But the question is: Do you have clients that are similar to Bobby Axelrod?
0: <laughs> Not currently. I had I've had guys like him. I had one guy in Asia. Uh, who is a real take no prisoners kind of guy. Um, we still keep in touch and and he's killing it, but um, I don't have anyone like that currently, no.
1: And on that topic, and I know we talked about it, can you just speak to how that characterization of you kind of changed? You said it had a huge impact on you. You weren't expecting it, yeah. but the Wall Street Journal, what, what did that do for you or your career?
0: I think it finally um, you know, pulled back the curtain that this was a job that existed. For a lot of my career, people have asked well what what exactly do you do you know you're there are uh, executive coaches that you'll hear all the time and they're you know executive coaches could have like a 3 month certificate course and be a former founder and it's a very different kind of experience than having a performance coach you know if you have a doctor of psychology or a background in psychiatry it's very very different so i think this gave people an idea of exactly what that is about and what people do in those roles it's a very real role it's something that um, people are hired to do it, it. If you think about it, if you can get a five percent return, a two percent return, if you can help somebody perform, you know, just those small percentage points better, th- that's millions of dollars uh, on the bottom line. So it's certainly worth it to have those people on your team and on your staff. So I think that pulling back the curtain a bit, that character helped people understand what the role was and and what its function was. So for me personally finally i i got to stop clarifying you know what exactly do you do are you a therapist uh, you know so for me that was great i think it also uh, i didn't know of the character for a long time and uh kind of catching up and i think the character is is pretty realistic in some ways although operating very unethically so i try to think that i'm i'm far more ethical and you know approach things maybe a bit differently but it's it's been really wonderful for the profession and i think it's given people an opportunity to see how valued high performance is among people who are operating at some of the top levels and what they're willing to do to kind of get that edge and how vulnerable they're willing to be with specific people.
1: You know, Wall Street's one of the most competitive places on the planet. Our, do most of the big hedge funds um, have full-time performance coaches that work there? Was just just kind of a fun thing for Bobby Axelrod to have or is this pretty common?
0: It depends on on where you're at. So um, for example, Citadel, uh, which is, you know, I don't know if people consider them the top hedge fund. I I certainly consider them the top or or one of the top hedge funds. Um, They will have a number of roles that are very similar to that. So while it may not be one person, they may have someone in their Chicago office, someone in their New York office. Um, I don't know if they're staffing it abroad or not, but um I know that they certainly employ people and they call them they have different role titles for them but they operate they have no HR functions and they they operate as performance coaches for their specific groups of people and they maybe will have one for their group of quants or one for certain groups within their organization but I know certainly that those are are people installed in those institutions I'm sorry
1: if this question's too direct but what what does a Wendy Rhodes at a Citadel or these big companies what do they get paid how how I remember on billions, like they were getting paid like $5 million or something a year. Is this, do they pay a lot of money for this stuff?
0: Yeah, they pay over a million plus bonus.
1: That's incredible.
0: Yeah. And it's a, you know, it's a negotiated role. So a lot of times, you know, some of that is performance based so that if you're able to push that bottom line again, and you can get these people to make, eke out an extra couple percentage, two, three percent, and you can help them to make those those changes, Ah, uh, you've paid for yourself many times over.
1: Mm-hmm. So you've probably heard it all. There's probably not a whole lot that surprises you anymore that that you could possibly hear. But because of your role, and 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 people come to you and they they share things they don't often share. What happens if somebody tells you what they're up to and and you hear it and you're like, oh wow, you're committing a, a huge crime or you're committing fraud? What 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 do you have to do is in your role? Do you have to keep it confidential or what what happens then?
0: Yeah, I mean, I wish them the best, um, but that's not my role to, you know. I I certainly will ask them certain questions, but uh, people tell you all sorts of things, right? Like people have talked to me about, you know, cheating on their spouse, and, uh, you know, stressors around certain other things that they're trying to navigate. Um, So I hear a lot of, a lot of different things, and I think those are areas for them to work through. And certainly, I can ask them certain questions around it, but it's not really for me. Uh, to make a, a judgment on that, I certainly will ask them about the risk. You know, what's your risk tolerance around that and how you're feeling about it? Um, people will do a lot of things to get an edge, and they, sometimes people will feel very protected in the things that they do, and sometimes they don't. I make sure that none of my certainly, um, you know, I write notes for my clients after each of our meetings. So I take the notes, I summate what we discussed, um, I give them action items, I make sure that they have kind of a brief one page. Uh, thing to walk away with within the next 24 hours. And I'm certain very certainly very vigilant that all of that information wouldn't be like trade secrets or something that uh, would give away anything that they work on or do. Uh, and I try to keep things really secure. But yeah, if they're doing something that's unethical or illegal, that's really not my place to say.
1: Yeah. One of the things on Billions that I was always kind of fascinated about, and you kind of talked about uh, at the very beginning about maybe somebody's not willing to take as much risk anymore, was a lot of the the characters were coming in and they were like, you know, I just can't make this trade. I just, I'm not, I can't do it. Like, what do you tell those people that are like, obviously you're not giving financial advice, but is, dude, make the trade.
0: (laughs) I think, I think what I try to do is I take people to a place where they're like, Tell me about when you're operating at your best. And I'm sure if anybody uh, heard heard this who's who's worked with me would say, you know, I've probably asked that question to them too. But I, I love to ask people that question because it shows me a side of them where they are really running hot. Like, tell me what it's like when you're operating at your best. What do you feel like? How does it feel? Like, what are you tapping into? What are you doing? You know, like, and a lot of times people describe almost these. Flow states. Like, I feel like nothing I can do is wrong. I'm making perfect trades. I'm doing, making perfect decisions. I'm like executing on this whatever. I'm, you know, negotiating the perfect contract. I, you know, I have a smooth way with clients where, you know, they just seem to bow to anything that I want, whatever it happens to be. You know, and kind of really tapping into that and seeing, okay, well, what contributes to that? Like what creates that? What's the magic there? How do you get to that? And really it gets to, you know, my whole theory around motivation, which is you know people really try hard to push motivation and that would be the person coming into that office right like i need to make that trade i need to push i need to make take that risk and i feel like every time you come from a place of push it's going to be bad you have to pull it has to pull you and it's almost like when you are you know dating someone and you're completely into that person, right? You're so into them that like you would move mountains. If they said, Hey, I want an iced latte. You would find one open at two o'clock in the morning and find a way to get it to them. No complaints, no problem. You just find a way to make it happen because you don't have to be pushed. Like, Oh God, you want me to get this latte for you? You you just, yes, ma'am. I will find a way to make that happen. I will make the magic. So I feel like that can happen everywhere, that you can have that kind of pull, that magic can be in you and you can tap into that fire so that it really just pulls you forward and you start to get into those zones. You start to be able to execute things that you want to execute. Things fall in line the way that they feel they should and you're able to be the person you need to be. So for me... It's about being pulled and tapping into that fire that you have and, and taking them to those places rather than let, letting them live in a place of kind of helplessness. You know, I need to be pushed. I, you know, I, I can't make it happen. Like that's a place of push and places of push are always unproductive.
1: Yep. Do most successful people, um, are they competing against themselves or are they competing against others?
0: You know, I want to say they're competing against themselves, but I think it's both. I think that they like to win. And you can't just win against yourself. You have to have a competitor. And I think that people enjoy uh, at certain points that you really enjoy winning and kind of being uh, the person who's sitting on top. Uh, And that's why I say the goalposts always change. Right. I think that they compete against themselves for a while. And you know, some people never stop do, operating from that perspective. And I think it's much healthier if you're the person who does that. You know, I have a client who says, I want to I want to operate until I can give each of my children this much. And then, you know, then I'm done. You know, that guy's just competing against himself. He has certain goals he wants to meet. It's about his family. It's about their f- future financial security. And he's done. I have other people who know the competitors in their space very well um, and are absolutely motivated by the fact that they want to uh, just make them into nothing and it's not beautiful but it is something that definitely motivates them and it keeps them coming back and working hard and trying to be the best at what they do
1: okay one more question then we'll we'll ask some fun personal ones and bring it home. But we're often told that you are who you are by the time you're, you know, some people say three years old, some people pay eight, say eight years old, and that you are who you are, you can't change. What What do you say to that?
0: Man, if someone's told me, um, and maybe this is true for you too, Chris, that you're exactly the same person I knew back in high school. I mean, I would not consider that a compliment. I, I would hope that I am different. I, I I hope that I've changed. And so, you know, if you insist on remaining who you are, you'll always be in the same place. You know, so for me, I think if you want to grow, change is essential. And that we will keep residues of who we are. Like we probably have a goofy sense of humor or, you know, other traits that we hold on to, maybe a certain curiosity, but we're not the same person and, and you shouldn't be proud of being the same person. You know, I once heard this saying that, only dead things don't grow. And I really believe that. I think that if you want to evolve in your business, you're going to have to change as a leader and you have to be open to change. If you want to evolve in your relationship with your spouse, man, you have to change and look at yourself and grow. If you want to evolve as a parent, man, that's going to challenge you. And you better be willing to evolve and change and grow. So I think when people tell you, you are who you are. I think a lot of people have an investment in keeping you the same. Um, but I think that to grow, you can't remain that person and that people who care for you and love you and support you will be proud of the evolution that you have.
1: If somebody asked you deep down inside, what do all humans really want? What would you say?
0: Ooh, that's really tough. <laughs> that is really, really <laughs> tough. Um I think that all humans want to be seen. And I think that takes a different form for everyone. But I think, you know, a lot of people just want to be seen and they want to be heard and they want to feel important. And it doesn't mean that you have to be important like the cover of Time magazine. But just I think for some people, just being important to someone, being seen for who they are and being appreciated for who they are, regardless of the bad or good moments that they have, I think that's a a, a very deep human need. Not to get too deep about it. No, I love I it. I, I, I
1: saved the hardest one for last. So sorry about that. <laughs> okay, when when we were chatting, um, and it's something that that I've thought a lot about, you kind of said, you talked about um, like a weekly review that you do with your wife. Yeah, You guys go through finances. I thought it was like really cool. And I thought maybe we could riff on it for a minute or two of what you do and what you look to accomplish in those meetings. I think a lot more spouses should do stuff like that.
0: Oh, I think it's great. Okay. So when you first start doing it, when we first started doing it, it it wasn't so great because our finances weren't in the place that they are today. Um, But when you first start out, you know, every week we sit down and we review our finances. So we look at things like, all right, um, what are the things we spent money on, Um, you know, budget stuff, and uh, net worth and investments and we tweak allocations if necessary and things like that and we talk about what we're going to be spending on too, right? So do we have any goals? Do we want to buy a home and and if we do, what what range should it be and how much are we willing to spend and you know all sorts of different things. Do we want to put it more into passive uh, you know incomes for our uh, vehicles for more passive income and and things like that. So every single week we sit down and we review things and we know really where every dollar goes. And maybe that seems really OCD to a lot of people, but I think that it's really important a lot of times we what we used to do is break it into buckets. So, we'd say, you know, when you're first starting out, you really have nothing and you're like, all right, at that time, you know, maybe you have like a car payment or you have a student loan or you have things that you're trying to pay down. And then eventually, you start doing the fun stuff, which I think is like looking at net worth or your investments. And, you know, we have different, it's like a game, right? Like there are certain places we want to get to and we have joint, uh, we join with that, like we join in that where we say, all right, like, what's our number? What do we want to get to uh, this year? How do we want to grow? And, you know, we, we talk through some big decisions that way. And it's, it's actually really exciting for me. And we both have different areas of expertise. So Amanda is, I think she's probably the most spreadsheet oriented person I've ever met and she's amazing with a spreadsheet and that's just not how I think about things but those spreadsheets have determined you know places we've lived and places we've purchased homes and and they include all different variables on them and for me you know like she's more of a traditional like she'll look at like angel investments and she's somebody who can uh vet companies in that way and I'm far more into um you know crypto and and some of those other areas that maybe are less traditional um i like real estate quite a bit so like you know we both come at things with different interests and areas of expertise for whatever they're worth more more expertise maybe not experts but more expertise and then we kind of talk about how we're going to divide things up we we really do invest the majority of our income so we're probably not common we invest you know well over 70% of what we bring in and it's been I think one of the best things that we've done, and we have a lot of fun with it. I think in the early days it was more stressful because you don't want to look at numbers, and you know when things aren't perfect, it's it's like the last thing you want to do. Um, but now it's just like you know where do you allocate things, and what can we do, and what would be fun to do, and what's important, and what are your priorities? Because I think a lot of things line up behind money, so that's that's kind of a good way of getting that conversation started.
1: I love it. I, I just thought that was a really cool thing that y'all do. Um, you answered one of the questions. It was a yes or no: Are you Bitcoin or no Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: a pro. We we have a, a percentage of our net worth in in uh, in crypto, so I'm definitely pro pro Bitcoin, but I think it has its place, right? Like I wouldn't advise anybody, you know, 100 all in on on Bitcoin, but do I think that it is a uh, an asset that is going to increase in value? You know, I do. And I I think a lot of the things that I was into early on are things that, you know, have panned out today. So I think that there's still growth in the crypto space happening. And a lot of it has uh, some great underpinnings uh, that are supporting it. I don't think that it's all just kind of random code and, you know, no use case. But I think physical assets, you know, a lot of people talk about things like storage units and multifamily properties and real estate. I think those things are absolutely invaluable, although tough to get right now. but I think those things are worth having too. I think diversity is really something that we value, and uh, something that I think is really important.
1: Has your line of work and obviously you probably just listening to conversations, you can pick up on trends, but has it made you a better investor or are you are you better at investing because of what you do?
0: I definitely am. I think that I get. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize some of the work that happens, you know, behind the scenes that that, try to, that I try to kind of keep up on to make me good at what I do. So that when things are happening in the space, like let's just say, you know, when Wall Street bets and that that whole thing was happening. Um, You know, I'm a member of Wall Street Bets and I have been for a long time, but also the following week, you know, I was in a group meeting with Adina Friedman, who's the president of NASDAQ, and kind of talking about what her thoughts were about what was happening and where she saw things happening. And when COVID was happening, you know, I was on a call with Hong Kong talking about their market predictions, what they're seeing, what they anticipate. And, you know, like, uh, you know, when I go to sports games, you know, I'm often talking to athletes or, you know, behind the scenes at like the U.S. Open or something to hear, you know, what's their experience in local fights talking to the winners and losers and you know I'm reading research every day. So I think that everything I do informs various aspects of my life. But certainly with investing, you know, I have clients who were all in on Bitcoin, you know, two years ago and I didn't really know what to think. You know, they'd say, Oh, I just put, you know, a half a million dollars into Bitcoin this month. And I, I just thought to myself, Oh my God, you know, that's a lot of that's that's a lot to put in. And you know it's it's paid off very well for them. So it does inform me. It makes me curious. It makes me investigate things and think about things differently. And you know, there are people that I see moving the needle in various areas. So I don't discount when people have things that seem out of the box to me.
1: Yep, that's so cool. I bet you get to hear and see things that that not, not a lot of people get to see. All right, two more. Who All does right. who does a performance coach go to if they need a performance coach? <laughs> <laughs>
0: probably, probably their spouse. Um, and also, you know, maybe talk to just like a, a friend who's also maybe running their own business. Um, I talk to my sister a lot and my, my sister and I are really, uh, very close. And so if anyone's going to kind of amp me up, uh, outside of my home base, it's probably going to be her. She's, we think a lot alike and, um, and she certainly has been really great support. Uh, she has really great insights and she's a really brilliant woman. And and again, just like business owners and friends that I have, I probably would talk to them. I probably look to who the specific issue is about and, and try to find a resource that match that as, as good as possible.
1: I love it. All right. Is there like a book or something that you often recommend to clients, something that somebody might be able to go read that could help them think about you know their goals and performance or anything that comes to mind?
0: I am often asked kind of books that I recommend, and I tend to do a lot of, I watch a lot of interviews. So one of the things I think is really important in my work is understanding what makes people think about things the way they do and what makes them, um, you know, perform at the levels that they do. And I watch interviews and things like that all the time. And I read a lot of research um, every day. But one of the things, a book that I think, I don't recommend this book. So, you know, nobody has to go out and read it. But one of the things I think really pushes um, how people think about these topics, it's it's really controversial, but I'm gonna say it anyway, it is uh 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. And that book is seen as being, you know, like a narcissist handbook. It's seen as being something that like is manipulative and and all of these different things. But I think if you're not pushing yourself at the edges of what people believe, then you're you don't read things to confirm what you already know. You should be reading things to challenge yourself, to push yourself and to make yourself question some things. And I think that's what this book does. I don't believe in it 100%. I don't think everything is true about it. But one one of the things I really like about it is that it certainly does take on some subjects around power and power and presentation and you know the internalization of power that are important and they look at stories that thread kind of the uh, the test of time. So it's something that I think would be valuable for anyone to kind of read through and, and I'd love to get their thoughts if they wanna hit me up on Twitter sometime.
1: I'm putting it on the list. Okay. Dr. Garner, thank you so much for, uh, for being generous with your time today. This this was fascinating.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Chris. I love speaking with you and, um, and I hope to, that we can uh, talk again sometime.
1: Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Ford Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.